0: Hi, it's Nachum Siegel with this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us a chance to check out some of the recent interviews on JM and the AM. Jake Novak had a lot to say about the current political situation. He was a guest recently. He's now on JM Rewind here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Malcolm Holmline not able to join us today, so the weekly update I am hoping will air next on New Year's Day, one week from today. Please, God, I do want to mention that our friends at Jewish World Review... They don't have the day off. No, they're providing thousands of articles on Israel and the Jewish world that you could print out before Shabbos. Go to jewishworldreview.com. Again, jewishworldreview.com and check it out. You'll be glad you did. It's a very comprehensive and interesting website. with a lot of unbelievable articles. On Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday night, it's the We Are One event for the One Israel Fund. It'll be online, and I have the honor of hosting it. Elizabeth Savetsky, Gad Elbaz, Naftali Bennett, Caroline Glick, all part of the program. We'll be honoring guests of honor, Dr. Emma Laskin and Bart Baum. Ami Chai Luri from Sheila Winery, Rebecca and Gabe Boxer. Gloria and Morris Grobe will be memorialized, and the award will be accepted by the Grobe, Oppenheimer, and Pollock families. And the Adid Yesha awardees are Hannah, Talia, Molly, Isabella, and Ariel, 12th graders at SKA Halb High School for Girls. And they'll be honored that night as well. It's all happening Tuesday night. Uh, if you if you missed the conversation with Eve Harrow earlier this week, here at JM and the AM, try to catch it because those of you who think that uh, nothing's being done during Corona and everything has stalled, boy, the One is real Fund is experiencing the exact opposite. So many projects, so many renovations, so many expansions of so many areas, developments, towns, and tourist attractions have been able to be uh, undertaken over the last few months because of the lack of people and the plenty of space available to do so. So uh, One Israel Fund needs our help more than ever. Go to oneisraelfund.org slash weareone, oneisraelfund.org slash one The great political commentator and analyst Jake Novak is with us live via telephone. He, of course, appears at 11 a.m. every Monday with us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And, uh, I am remiss that I waited this long to get Jake on the air. He is honestly one of the people responsible uh, behind the scenes for us, for the great broadcast that we had from the UAE just two weeks ago. Jake Novak, welcome back to JM in the AM.
1: Oh, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and um, obviously I've uh, congratulate you, congratulated you privately, but let me publicly congratulate you for those broadcasts, not just the idea and the concept, and putting it together, but the execution was really fantastic. Uh, really, really uh, hard to stop listening. I couldn't believe how fast the hours went by uh, <laughs> every morning. Really, I, when I was listening, it was really impressive.
0: I appreciate that very much. And one of the things that I learned from this experience, and sometimes it does take you know a, a, a many many decades to learn lessons in life. I've always we've always heard our teachers and our instructors preach to us, you know, the more you know about history the more it's easy to understand the period of time that you're in. And boy, if this uh, episode of going to the UAE in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords was not an indication of that, because as you had uh, prepared us privately, and then of course we discussed publicly on the air... And you can't just look at the last 80, 90, 100 years in isolation compared to the rest of Jewish history with other religions. you got to go back and look at the entire larger picture, and I think that's one of the messages we brought back, that if you look at the larger picture, we're talking about a completely new world right now.
1: Yeah, you know, as a, as a community, Jews are, are it's a little bit of a disadvantage on that, and I think it was because of relatively good intentions. You know, I think from the religious side, we had... Religious instructors over the years who wanted to focus on Limmudai Kodesh. They wanted to do that, so they didn't want to have like. If you, you go to your average more Haredi or even even more Orthodox yeshiva, you're not going to have a Jewish history course. Right. Uh, and then on the secular side, there's a very famous story of David Ben Gurion when they approached him uh from the education ministry and saying you know can we create a Jewish history program for the Israeli schools this is in 1949 or 1950 and he said what's there to say uh we'll have a one a one sentence history lesson we were oppressed for 2000 years now we're back in Israel go play soccer now i mean so from both the secular and the religious side we've had a little bit of a disadvantage i think it was good intentions on both sides i don't think it was a you know revisionist history or an attempt to erase knowledge it was just a focus on the now and a focus on what they thought was a higher priority. But you're so right. I mean, if you don't understand, I mean, you know, the Jewish people have really started the whole record- recorded history business, <laughs> when you think about it. And for us to sort of gloss over anything previous to the last hundred years or so is really a big mistake. You know, for us to you know look at biblical, biblical history, then skip over to maybe 1900, that's not a good idea. We really need to know more about where we've been and, and how other people have interacted with us during that
0: time. And just to give everyone the bigger picture here, what we're talking about, and again, those who are tuned in, I think, got this message, is that, again, no fault of anybody involved, if you grow up in what we call the Yeshiva League, right to left, uh, here in the New York area, or probably anywhere in the United States, uh, we have uh, been inundated with 20th century history about all who hate us, including what we perceived as the majority or all of the Arab world. And again, not blaming anybody, but that's just the context of the way the 20th century worked. And you reminded us both before the trip, and then I had a chance to remind everybody during the trip, that this, what's happening in Dubai, what's happening in Bahrain, etc., is not an exception when it comes to the bigger picture in history. There have been many, many times that both with Christians and with uh, members of the Muslim faith that Jewish communities got along very, very well, especially when it comes to Islam. You know, we went to the UAE, and one of the things, and today's a fast day, so it's funny I'm bringing this up. Uh, and we went to the UAE, and one of the things we we learned that that, that it's, it's really not coincidence nor uh, something to gloss over. That the multiple prayer sessions per day and and fasting being part of our tradition and what you can or can't eat meat wise is important to both the fact that all of those apply in some way to both religions needs to be put into context. It's not just a coincidence.
1: That's right, and you know it's something that is very much on the minds of most Muslims I've ever known. You know, when I was in grad school, we had our first day in grad school. This was at Northwestern, twenty six, twenty seven years ago. And they gave little bios for everyone from our incoming class, and mine included some of my Jewish background, of course. And uh, a Muslim woman came over to me and immediately said, you know, there's a lot of similarities. You know, That was the first thing she said. Just, and I, that was the experience I've had ever since. There's huh. a real effort on a lot of Muslims, especially if they're involved in any way in the secular world, to seek out those... Who have similar practices and similar, uh, you know, customs, and uh, to me that is something that has been constant throughout. And I heard that a lot during your your broadcast. It's important to understand. Obviously, the Rambam was interested in that, and that's one of the reasons why he was so enamored of, or at least was more admiring of Muslim culture at the time of his life. Right. Um, and, you know, this all has to be tempered. Obviously, there have been yep. ups and there's downs. Yep. You know, whenever you and I say something like this, there's going to be someone who really wants to emphasize the negative moments. Yep, I and I don't it. think we should quiet those people right. and say we're not going to listen to you. Understood. But Look,
0: said. We saw what happened this week in Israel. I mean, you know, yeah. the reality is there are people who literally want to take rocks and smash the skulls of Jews. Unfortunately, yeah. we learned that lesson, you know, and, and we have to keep that in mind. By the way, I was thinking about this really, really early this morning, um, in, in the context of our conversation. Is there a way to, with all this in mind, and with my friends from Iran who <laughs> claim? that growing up in Iran was similar to my experience in the UAE, meaning they played soccer with the non-Jewish Islamic kids and they had neighbors who were very friendly and there was respect, mutual respect, business dealings, etc. Assuming that it's the, it's, it's the same or at least similar to the experience I had in the UAE, is there a way to to sum up where things went wrong what the seventy eight seventy nine revolution what what it what, what was going wrong in that country that it created revolutionaries who wanted major change and that unfortunately created this forty year disaster over there in iran
1: well yeah i mean seventy you had a very corrupt government in Iran now there have been there were corrupt governments throughout the Arab world and the Muslim world obviously because the Iranians are not Arabs we should point that out right um, but the difference was that you had a You had many years of a more open society in Iran, and that allowed for all kinds of people who could take advantage of the freedoms that they had there. In other words, we keep thinking about, well, freedom of the press and openness, that's always going to lead to good things. Well, I would argue that sometimes you have to be careful with that. Look what's happening in China. For years we've been told, if we just open up to China... Uh, they'll eventually become more democratic and open and actually feels like they've started to import, there, especially with our tech companies, they've started to import, import totalitarianism over to us. And I think what happened in Iran was that. Now, what happened also was Iran was a direct result of the fall of Egypt as far as the leading enemy of Israel. The, you would not have had the Iranian Revolution if it had not been for the Egypt-Israel peace accord. Wow. And, and now, now there were good things about it, but as also we've spoken about, the failure of the Israel, Egypt-Israel peace accord to be uh, translated as a positive thing throughout the Muslim world unlike what we're seeing with what's going on in Dubai and the Bahrain, Bahrain peace deals and other peace deals we've talked about. That it, it came off in the Muslim world as a total, pay, as a total sort of cop-out by Egypt as a weakness on their part, and that somebody somewhere had to take up the Islamist cause. somewhere because Egypt is very important. Egypt is the birthplace of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the, the parent organization, the seedling organization of every Islamist genocidal Islamic group. There so, are a lot of them I know. I know Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, right. all those, all those groups. The Muslim Brotherhood, even though it's mostly, you know, it was a Sunni organization, even the Shia Islamist groups come from the Muslim Brotherhood, which was very much an Egyptian entity.
0: So if the Mus- so if the Iranian Revolution wouldn't have worked, and excuse the you know a, a pedestrian way I put that, yeah. but if it wouldn't have worked, that then what would have happened? There would have been a peace deal with Israel. And who would have taken upon that, themselves that mantle that you just described?
2: Well,
1: you know, then, I mean, again, now you're really dealing with the butterfly effect. Who knows what else happens right. if you go back in time. Right. I don't know if there would have been that many great opportunities otherwise. What really needed to be fixed was the way that Egypt and Israel related to each other. And way Egypt related to itself. Egypt still has... Egypt is still, the, you know, for for all, most of our lives, Egypt was the most important Arab country because it had the strongest military and had the largest population. And you
3: know, it was, and it it was the next, and it was next door,
0: and it was next it, to Israel.
1: <laughs> yes, right. it also had the largest uh, population. It has the largest illiteracy rate, still does in that mm. part of the world. Right. Um, it had so much, you know, a tremendous amount of natural resources and and that gateway to you know to into the other from one continent to the next. And, you know, blew all those opportunities. And it still is, it, to some extent, however, because Saudi Arabia so much holds the financial purse strings of Egypt now, Egypt is much more reasonable than it's ever been, but it still has a problem. It is nowhere near democracy. It is nowhere near really dealing with some of the very radical anti-Jewish, anti-Israel elements within Egypt, like Saudi Arabia is dealing with it inside of their country. And for, to me, that, is the, that was a real issue, and that is one of the things that really turned what had been... Um, Smaller groups of terrorist groups, smaller groups of genocidal Islamists that were in and out of... And and suddenly you had an entire country that became Islamist in Iran because that peace agreement angered, uh, was not explained correctly, and was not enforced correctly in a a political and a cultural way in Egypt, like we're seeing with Dubai, that we're seeing such a cultural change. Because Egypt did not do that or felt that the government was too weak to do so... You had, you had something like Iran I thought was inevitable to happen.
0: It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and the and the Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Jake Novak's with us at JakeJakeNY on Twitter, at JakeJakeNY. One more question on this, and there are other topics i got to get to, but I, I just have to ask you. So if the first point you brought up when I asked that question about Iran was co- a corrupt government, Is that essentially, and I know all the other factors you just mentioned, but is that essentially the big difference between them in those years and now Dubai today? Because it was described to us by really prominent business people, both Emiratis and foreigners, that that's the big advantage in Dubai is that the government has great concern for the population and they're trying to manage the funds responsibly. Am I giving too much credit to the kingdom in Dubai or is is that accurate?
1: Well, not compared to the Shah of Iran. I mean, the Shah of Iran was an out-and-out kleptocrat, and he also wasn't that smart. I mean, look, let's put it this way. I mean, I hate to be tough on the guy, you know, but he really was very, very, he had a tremendously deaf ear to what was going on in his country for many years, even before the Ayatollah started to, uh, you know, he would have been in exile in France, and he started, you know, causing problems there um the, the, the it's amazing the that that is the biggest contrast forget it, you know you don't, if you don't' if it's, if it's hard to define exactly what corruption is then let's let's use this as a definition The emirati ruling family is not looking to just steal all the money for itself right. and is very very attuned and is very, really has its ear to the ground to what it's people I don't thing they always do what everyone on the street wants right but buy, they but they, they get the,
0: but they get the big picture
1: yeah and they're very involved they're out there i mean you know the Shah of Iran was Totally inaccessible. He was, you know, his, his children and his children weren't even in the country. One of the, one of the reasons why his son escaped the whole thing is because right. he was at the Air Force Academy as a visiting student. I don't know what he was studying, but he was a visiting student at, in, at Colorado Springs. And you know, so they're, they're very involved. They're very involved in the day to day stuff. They're they're noticeable. You mentioned how they have their picture everywhere. Right. They, they're 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 popular with the people because they are they're connected to them in a much better way. it's not a democracy you know there, there's things that I would like to see improve. There is uh, a lot of government uh, control over certain things, but on the other hand, they don't have a lot of other regulations and taxes which turns it into much more of a freer city than than it had been than you know than so many others are, including here in the United States or a lot in a lot of ways
0: right and the, so and, yeah. so, the, so when the u s backed the shah that was the bigger problem. In other words, they hated the west, the new group, hated the ayatollah crowd hated the west to begin with, but once we showed that we were ready to physically and in other ways support the shah, then then that was it. That was the that was the, you know, game set match, right?
1: Yeah, and we were trapped into that by the Cold War and and obviously the Cold War was filled with all kinds of missed opportunities. You know, it was just so you know, when things get solved We say to ourselves, why did we do this before? You know, when Israel, the the, the reaching out to Saudi Arabia and working with them on the security aspect and the economic aspect seems so obvious to us now. I wish we had thought about that in 2001. Good point. And the same thing also with the Soviets. And defeating the Soviet Union really was about standing up to them without necessarily getting into all these minor wars like Korea and Vietnam and things like that. We could have beaten them earlier, and maybe we wouldn't have had to have backed you know, lousy people like the Shah, who wasn't even in the top five of the lousy people we had to back in the Cold War. But right. he was—he was close. I mean, he was just really, yeah, honestly. It, it's even worse than his corruption was his incredible stupidity. The man was completely deaf to a very large company. It wasn't country? It wasn't like he was like some small country with a couple million people. I mean, Iran's a huge country with right. a lot of resources, and he was running it like it was like a, a backdoor operation. You know, like a bookie. It was
0: ridiculous. Good point, Jake Novak with us, Jake Jake N Y on Twitter uh all right it's no secret um you didn't have a saw young performance when it came to uh the states in the (laughs) most recent election but you had a you had a pretty solid you know uh 18 and 10 season i would say that time (laughs) um and boy and florida florida was like your perfect game frankly the way you predicted that one um but with all that in mind mr novak what can you tell us about january the fifth what can you tell us about the state of georgia
1: well, the state of Georgia has. To me, there's no evidence that the problems that have plagued Georgia and a lot of the other states where I believe the results of the election really can't be considered to be the true will of the people. I don't really see them fixing any of those problems. You know, the, the two biggest problems with this election, and I know that the, to me there's a really big misdirection with this focus on the voting machines. I don't think there's anywhere to go with that, and I think the, the cases involved with that are not really going to go anywhere for a number of reasons. The real problem, Nahum, is that, We had vote-by-mail, and we have something called ballot harvesting, which led to, I think, millions upon millions of fraudulent votes. And even if they didn't, let's say you have some listeners here who are very offended by that comment, very upset, and it's the kind of thing that'll get you censored on social media if you say that line that I just said. Let me just put it this way. Even if you think that every one of those votes was legitimate... It clearly was a violation of a very important principle in every democratic society, which is the secret ballot. Vote by mail destroys the secret ballot, as does ballot harvesting. Ballot harvesting, to put it very briefly, is when only the Democrats do this. The Democrats go into these neighborhoods, they show people a filled-out ballot, and they basically get them to sign it. If you don't have a secret ballot, you don't have a true democracy, and you don't have a legitimate election. And no one upon no one can deny that we had millions upon millions, probably 20 million at least, ballots that were not secret ballots, I think a lot more than that. So when you talk about the state of Georgia, I'd see the same thing. There. Apparently there's already about 800,000 ballot harvested ballots out there. Uh, there's going to be vote-by-mail, and none of this has been addressed. Now, I thought that the courts would try to thread a needle here and ban this, and say, uh, Trump still lost the election, but the way that he lost is completely illegal. I mean, I don't know how they would do that, but listen, that's why they pay these, that's why these clerks, they don't get paid actually a lot that much. They get paid eventually, they get paid a lot. That's why they go through, you know, that's why they choose in the Supreme Court the top graduates of all the top law schools, because they need smart people to thread these needles and do these legal fictions. But it's very, very discouraging because, as you know, I, I like to look at the stats from previous elections and see where they're going. I think anybody worth their salt looking in this election, Whether they're happy with the result or not, it's going to have to throw out these statistics. It's like looking at those basketball games that 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 corrupt referee 20 years ago or 15 years ago got caught. There's nothing to learn from this election, unfortunately, because it was so fouled up, at least from the secret ballot point of view. Everyone has to agree on that. Well,
0: then, based on what you just said, it sounds like you're ready to concede the state of Georgia, and the Senate's now going to be a Democratic Senate.
1: I I really see it as a tough, tough hill for the Republicans to climb, especially since there isn't a tremendous amount of... I don't know if there's going to be a lot of Election Day enthusiasm, which is where the Republicans have their only shot of overcoming this. But, I mean, really, to me, I just don't understand why there wasn't more of a... I know there were a lot of... There were court cases filed to try to stop some of the wider vote-by-mail stuff, But they needed to do more than that. Sadly, I think they needed to do more. If if the Democrats were out in the streets canvassing them, they needed to be out in the streets identifying to the authorities here's where the ballots are. Let's have them impounded. We're not going to destroy them. We're not going to cause any violence. We're not going to do anything else like that. But let's impound them until a court can decide whether they're valid. Let's not count them at all until that happens. And they didn't do that. And I don't think they're doing that in Georgia. So I don't see how they come out ahead unless this fraud is other. I and mean, as I said to everyone across the country the entire year this year was that I expected Trump to win the election, with the one caveat being, I don't know how much fraud there's going to be. And and that's the thing. I don't know how much fraud there's going to be in Georgia, but it seems like there's going to be a lot.
0: Oh boy, I'll tell you, for those of us who really love America, it's so sad that, uh, that there's so much, uh, at, at the minimum accusations, but who knows just how much fraud there really is when it comes to these democratic elections, or what we hope would be democratic elections. Finally, Jake... Um, Tell me the significance to you, both historically and in 2020, when you read an article that Israel is prepared to build a 120-story building.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, the the first thing that I think about is just the architectural aspect. They they always told us when you would go to visit Israel, even as a little kid, that they actually had the capacity because of, I guess, the bedrock there, whatever it was, that they could build Tall buildings there, but and then you of course you had the issue of security. You know, right. well, we don't want to build such large buildings because they would be such a, an obvious target for right. people. Um, that shows that Israel is. It, it, it's a significant economic achievement, first and foremost. Let's not get that. It's a major economic. This is a country that can get the financing for this kind of thing. You know, every large building that you see in Manhattan, no one really owns, and a whole ton of people have like have <laughs> have, a, have a piece of that pie. That's because it's just so expensive to do. And you know, whoever's name on it, it probably only has a small percentage. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, yes, the 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 security that comes from all this. You know, these missile tests. I think this is one of the top stories in the world over the last month that no one covered. Almost no one, almost no one covered. The successful missile test that Israel conducted a couple of weeks ago that showed a combination of David Sling, the Arrow missiles, and uh, Iron Dome are now able to take out cruise missiles, which, understand, has been Hezbollah and Iran's, one of their major projects, if not the major anti-Israel military project over the last 10 years. It's, it's totally negated it, or at least really, really weakened it. So I don't think that you go ahead and do this without some major confidence in the military protection aspect of this and that is really a, a a fantastic achievement and again remember it's an economic and military achievement uh if they somehow found a way to grow the building with their agriculture then it would be a true symbol of everything Israel has accomplished <laughs> because it would be a combination of those three things the economic technical uh, stuff, the defense stuff, and the agricultural cutting edge stuff. Those are all the three great pillars of achievement <laughs> of Israel that Israel has established. So yeah. kind of Maybe they'll have a greenhouse
0: in the building. It, they can put it all together. It would be funny if they asked them how they're building the building and say, yeah, we have the dirt and water to do this. Yeah, Don't worry. Yeah. we got plenty of it.
1: Yeah, drip uh, irrigation.
0: Jake, love having you on. Thanks for everything. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Good Shabbat, everyone. Thank you so Shabbat much. Shabbat Shalom. And thank you so much, is right. Uh, Jake, Jake NY, at Jake, Jake NY on Twitter. Jake Novak. I always used to uh, hear from people that if you want um, if you want to understand something, uh, make sure you hear it from a great Balmaz beer. Make sure you hear it from someone who has the ability to really explain things well. It's one of the reasons I enjoy speaking to him so much. That was Jake Novak of NSN on a recent edition of JM and the AM here on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Nathan Diamond is next from the Orthodox Union. We spoke about the security funding and other funding that the Jewish community and other private communities are now enjoying from Washington. Nathan Diamond, the recent guest on JMNAM. here he is on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Nathan Diamond is with us live via telephone. He's executive director for the Orthodox Union Advocacy Center. Spends a lot of time in Washington and whenever he's on it's usually one of two things. Either there's a call to action, and uh, he expects our national audience to respond and to help out, which they do, thank God. Uh, Or there's really good news. And by the way, in this case, it's the really good news department. We'll talk about that coming up here at JM and the AM. Nathan Diamond, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good morning, Nakam. It's a
3: pleasure to be with you as always.
0: Appreciate that. And we do have a lot to talk about, especially when it comes to uh, both the COVID relief and and items that have been designated specifically for our community and other uh, uh, private school communities. And we'll get to all that Uh, every time there's been a transition in Washington, at least a serious one, meaning the White House. uh, We've asked you what your impressions are. We did this from uh, uh, Bush to Obama, Obama to Trump. And now today we ask you with uh, just about a month uh, remaining in the Trump administration, what do you anticipate for those of us who are concerned about Israel and those of us who spend time in the active Jewish community, what do you anticipate from the future Biden administration?
3: Well, I think uh, with regard to the Biden administration, if you look at who he's appointed
0: to key posts with
3: regard to Israel so far, um, people like uh, his longtime national security advisor, Tony Blinken, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Um, these are people who, first of all, have been in senior levels of government before. They've dealt with Israel before, um, and they have a track record, um, as does Joe Biden himself. And you know, I would characterize them all as being in the the longtime mainstream of the Democratic Party with regard to policies towards Israel. They're not; none of them are, you know, on the left wing. Um, you know they're also not right-wing Republicans, so they they view um, as it as being important for both the United States and Israel to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through the quote-unquote two-state solution. Um, they do they want to uh, thwart Iran's nuclear weapons ambitions, but they want to return to trying to do that through a negotiated agreement. Right. Um, which is which is not maybe necessarily mainstream <laughs> pro-Israel views right now, but um, you know these are people with a track record, and Joe Biden himself, and he, he speaks about this time and again, has had a very long, personally warm relationship with Israel and its leaders literally for decades um he goes He was telling a story about his first trip to Israel as a senator where he met Prime Minister Golda Meir and how she made a big impression on him right. So, you know, I think that's the overall atmosphere that we're going into.
0: Let me ask you this, uh, Nathan Diamond. Um, when President Trump came into office, I think he was pretty open about the fact that there were certain things he wanted to either eliminate or completely change. I mean, Obamacare is obviously a good example of that. I think the deal with Iran, most could say, is a good example of that. Uh, do you see the president, the next president of the United States acting in a similar manner? In other words, should we be fearful that some of the things that President Trump has implemented that we are in favor of, embassy move, recognition of certain areas of greater Israel, et cetera, should we, we be afraid that those could be eliminated or curtailed, or is Joe Biden um, a little bit more um, uh, diplomatic than that, and he might go about those issues and the Iran issue with a little bit more of a middle-of-the-road approach?
3: Yeah, I think it's mostly the latter. I mean, he's he's clearly said he's not moving the uh, American embassy back to Tel Aviv. Um, uh, I don't think they've said anything publicly about the Golan, but I would, I would be surprised if they changed, you know, Trump's recognition uh, of Israeli sovereignty on the Golan. Um, policy toward, you, you know, what we call Judea and Samaria is going to be a little more complicated. Um, again, because I think they're going to want to look to at some point get back into a peace process, but um, well, I can tell you, even even you could look, your, your listeners could look this up. Um, there was an article published, uh, a very well reported article published by JTA before the election, which uh, which documented how during the Obama administration, when there were you know a good amount of tensions, how vice then Vice President Joe Biden was viewed as the pro-Israel voice in the room, the one trying to, you know, uh, to use your word, handle things more diplomatically. Right. Um, so I think there's going to be more of a tone. Oh, and frankly, the other thing is, you know, whatever's going on, Joe Biden's first, second and third priorities are going to be the COVID pandemic, the American economy. Um, and while he certainly will pay attention to foreign policy um, and, and issues related to the Middle East, you know that's not going to be at the top of his inbox
0: understood understood Nathan Diamonds with us we promised good news and i think we could say Nathan that we have good news uh, people are wondering about the uh, funding that's coming out of washington and if in fact our synagogues and schools will be beneficiaries if in fact the covid-19 package has something that we as uh, non-public day school people um uh, you know, pay attention to. Is it something that includes something that we would benefit from? What could you tell us first regarding the uh, re- the COVID nineteen relief package as it relates to our community?
3: Sure, um, it, it is it is good news in a very difficult situation. Obviously, at at the Orthodox Union, uh, at the Advocacy Center, we're we're constantly working on the interests and, and, and in service of our community and we know how much um, our community has been disrupted along with you know America as a whole and, and um within our community our schools. Um, and it's been very, very costly and difficult. And um so when when Congress was putting together yet another relief package after they did the CARES Act several months ago, we were very engaged um, with with allies, bipartisan allies, and we knew there was going to be money for K through 12 schools in right. general. Right. Um, and thank God, uh, we we succeeded in working with those allies uh, to have in this package 2.75 billion dollars specifically set aside uh, to support non-public K through 12 schools, um, Jewish, Catholic, and otherwise. And these the, the funds are going to be administered by the governors. Uh, who will apply for the funds, you know, to Washington. And um, the funds will be available to help schools with, you know, a very broad menu of COVID-related expenses, cleaning, sanitizing, buying technology, supporting remote learning when they have to do that, changing their curriculum um, for remote learning, It also reimbursing them for expenses that they've already uh, incurred for all of that these past months, and it's it's really unique in in past we've we've not had this kind of set aside uh for our schools uh as as we got in this in this legislation, so yeah. that's the most significant thing
0: well the um, um the, sometimes we wonder about the uh, the monies that that's allocated out of Washington, frankly, if you and others at the o u and others were not uh were not advocating for this in washington essentially private schools would would likely be ignored uh, it's only through the efforts over all these decades uh, people like yourself have put private schools on the agenda in Washington
3: well I appreciate that and I, I on this one I, I would also be remiss we had we did this really in partnership with the Catholic right. uh, community which, o- and, which, o- uh, which
0: often happens now right a lot of which these- often
3: happens but and, and and I have to thank uh, uh, you know in front of your listeners Cardinal Dolan of New York right was uh was very heavily involved and, and making phone calls and uh so that was great so, and by the way the other thing that's in this package relevant not only to our schools but also possibly to shoals and other nonprofit organizations is there's going to be a second round of uh the the ppp loans the paycheck protection loans right um it's a little bit more targeted than it was the first time around you, the, to get one of these second loans um an organization will need to have fewer than 300 employees and will have to show that its income is down by 25% right. um you know so those who are hardest hit uh will will be able to access second ppp loans and um there's some other things in the in the package as well
0: now um, do, do schools have ahead. do schools have to do anything at this point now you know principals and executive directors are hearing this uh, about right. the two two point seven five billion. They also heard you say the governors will be responsible for it. Is there anything a school or any type of of uh, of group has to do at this point? Um, today,
3: no. Uh, we're, we you know we want people to be, especially the leaders of these schools, to be aware of this. We we've sent out some guidance information. Um, right now, uh, we're engaged now with the U.S. Department of Education because they have to very rapidly put out. The guidance for the governors to apply for these funds. Um, our, our state advocacy teams, our partners at the OU and the Teach Coalition Network are engaging with the governor's offices and sort of saying to them, hey, this money's coming. We want you to apply. We want it for our schools. But but pretty soon, uh, there, there's there's going to be action that will be need to be taken um, by school leadership, and we will certainly communicate that out um, right away. And Nathan Dyer, uh, the, the other yeah. thing I should just mention, you know, people people follow the news, there is a little bit of a hiccup right now because President Trump uh two might, nights ago might veto the bill. Um, is, is, is 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 yeah, put a pause on this bill. So this is all tied up in that. But hopefully that will get resolved.
0: I <laughs> I actually should have had that on my list of questions. You're right. That, that is a newsworthy item as it relates to this. Um all right. I, so I'm told that the funding for the not-for-profit security grant program has been doubled. First, please right. explain, what is the not-for-profit security grant program?
3: Right. So, so this is a program that uh, we at the OU and other partners initiated back in 2005 when we realized you know, the security, the costs of security for our community were back then already starting to be uh, focused upon and incre- and security needs were increasing. And this is a program we created under which uh, the Department of Homeland Security gives out grants um, generally up to about $100,000 uh, each. And, and just to
0: and just, improve- and just remind everybody, if, if they look at any large or any significant synagogue in our community, a lot of these security enhancements came from that money.
3: Yes. Um, so, so these, and these grants can be used to put up, Fences and bollards and shatterproof glass and and heavy doors. They can also um, be used to hire security guards um, uh, and and for training and purposes like that. Um, You know, we started off this program in 2005. It was at $25 million a year. It was very restricted to certain geographic areas, mainly major metropolitan centers. And unfortunately, because the need has continued for security – um, we've, we've particularly in the past few years, uh, worked again with bipartisan allies in Congress to um, increase the funding for this program. A couple years ago, we got it up to $60 million. Last year, we got it up to $90 million, and this year um, doubled it to $180 million. And also, it's now available, whereas in the first, I would say, decade of the program, it was restricted to those geographic areas. Um, it 's now available across the United States as a whole, so communities that were not in those geographic areas and were not able to get these funds for many years now are eligible as
0: well uh so the fund has been doubled those of you who have a uh, who are leading institutions, synagogues and uh, houses of worship uh that are um Uh, that are um, in any area of the United States. And by the way, this goes for both the Jewish and other parochial day schools as well. It's not just shuls. If you lead a day school as well, uh, you are eligible up to $100,000 per applicant um, uh, from this program, $180 million. So again, the same question to you, Nathan Diamond. Does a school at this point, especially those or a shul at this point, especially those that have been part of this system in the past, is there anything they need to do right now?
3: So um, the we we expect the application again if President Trump signs right. <laughs> the big funding package <laughs> uh, we expect the application period to start in probably in in mid February. Right. Um, the, the most important thing if for an institution that's never been through this process before is to get uh, if they don't have one or haven't had one recently to get a security assessment right. of their of their facility. Um, they can get that from their local police department or their local FBI uh, office. Um, and uh, that, that's that's step one that they can do on their own. Um, and then, again, as as we move towards um, when the application uh, periods are, you know, really set and the application start to go, yeah, we will be communicating out to the community, um, you know, the timelines and the deadlines and all that.
0: So yet another reason... To root for the uh, for President Trump not to interfere and for this package to go through. Uh, if uh, and
3: give, by the way, I'll give you one more, yeah. which is uh, the annual aid package to Israel is right. in this
0: That's massive great. funding bill as well. How many millions um, is that? Around how many million is that? Do you know what's in it? Billions. That? Oh, it's billions. Billions, <laughs> billions <laughs> yeah. of dollars. I don't know why I yeah. thought, and actually I have a picture. Maybe I'll, I'll bring it up now. I don't know why I thought that in this specific package it was like $500 million, but I'll look just to... Make sure. But also, if you're a fan of the Smithsonian, you should be rooting for this bill. Am I correct about that? Did you see? Yeah, it's, it's, they put two
3: things together. They put together the COVID relief package. Two things. So not, which is, <laughs> two things. Yes. Yeah, which it's,
0: is, it seems like a well, lot two more of Two big
3: packages. Two big packages. The, the COVID relief package with the, the, the funding package, what's called the omnibus funding package, which funds the entire federal government for the balance of its fiscal year, which runs through September. Right. Um, you know, uh, it's unfortunate that it was done this way. Uh, it was all left for the last minute and in one giant 6,000-page <laughs> piece of legislation. But that's ha- that happens. <laughs> so-
0: you see, here here's the list that I have. I don't know if this is accurate, uh, but the Kennedy Center, $26 million. The Smithsonian, mm-hmm. as you and I just alluded to, $1 billion. $1 billion going to the Smithsonian. In this aid mm-hmm. package, now my kids and I calculated. I think it's only eight dollars more per American if that billion would be split, um, you know, in, in in the actual aid package. You know, the one that uh, that everyone's calling the six hundred dollar check. Uh, so I guess it wouldn't make that much of a difference to people. But still, there are a lot of folks that resent the fact that a Smithsonian is getting a billion in an aid package like this. And then, frankly. Many people are criticizing the foreign countries that are getting aid. I mean, uh, here right. we have Egypt, according to this list, at $1.3 billion in this deal. Israel, according to li- this list, $500 million in this deal. And then, of course, there are many other, uh, Pakistan and many other countries that are being uh, uh, taken care of in this uh, in this package as well. But you would say to us, some would call it corruption, some would call it mafia style. You would say to us, folks, just realize this is the way it works in Washington, right? I mean, this is what you've seen for decades.
3: Um I mean it, yes and no it, or it's it, if you go back um you probably at this point have to go back about 10 years um that Congress Congress and presidents were able to do the annual appropriations bills for the federal government in a more say orderly way mm-hmm. um and, by the way, I mean, we, we, it's funny. I call it, you call it one big package. It really is actually 12 or 15 appropriations bills rolled into this one omnibus bill. Because you have, you, have you have an appropriations bill for the State Department. You have an appropriations bill for the Homeland Security Department. You have an appropriations bill that includes the Smithsonian, right, uh, right. et cetera. They, that, rolling all that into one big package is not a big deal. But uh, the point is that those things are worked on, you know, by – Many members and many committees over the period of the year, but it's become you know as Washington has become more and more partisan and polarized um, there are disagreements they don't get resolved things they're kind of like school children they leave everything to the last minute, and <laughs> you end up with this turning in your homework you know at the last minute, and this is what you get um some people some people are advocating and I, I personally happen to agree with this that you know one of the things that would grease the wheels uh would be if they would bring back something that are called earmarks right um which they did away with right uh about a dozen years ago um but earmarks are basically you know your your individual congressman or woman you know it is it, not meant to be quote unquote corrupt it's like your congressman so and so wants to get federal money for a bridge in their district because the district, you know, the bridge fell down, they need a new bridge. And this is a way that the congressman can say, look, I'm bringing home the bacon, right, to my district. Um, You know, some of it was a little, was a little loose,
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: but there are ways ways to deal with that. You can make it much more transparent and, you know, everybody should know ahead of time what's going on. But the feeling is if, you know, they took that away so that meant that the individual members of Congress in a certain sense had less of a personal stake in these big packages. Right. But if you bring them back, again as long as you had transparency in place, you couldn't have really corrupt stuff going on, you know, now the congressman got his bridge in the package, he's going to want to support the package. Um and you know, maybe we need some of that uh to, to to make the process work a little bit more smoothly
0: excellent explanation I feel like I'm in political science 101 the way you just explained Washington 2020 that's really what it's all about that's the core of uh, of everything that we've been seeing over the last few weeks actually months as they negotiated all of this back and forth yeah uh very interesting well, the other
3: thing you, the other thing you had going on over the past few months and I would say this was going on with both the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership in Congress, is each one had their own calculation as to, you know, going into the November elections. Right. Uh, you know, what was going to help my party more win those elections? Right. And I, I, would, I would put equal blame on both sides for, you know, not having done another big deal after the CARES Act because they were all making these election calculations. Right. Um, so you know, even though even though this control of the Senate is up in the air with the Georgia uh, runoffs, um, you know both sides felt like okay, now it's in everybody's interest. We got to get a deal done. Got a deal done. Um, we still do have this, hopefully, uh, only a hiccup with regard to what the president has said, um, and and the aid will get out to. Me. And by the way, we mentioned some parochial things for our community, but right. I mean, the the you know there are programs in here to help. Um people who are in you know going to food pantries and are and are hungry mm-hmm. um um you know there 's the moratorium on evictions and there's unemployment insurance and and that's that's in the current situation that the united States is in um all those programs are really um vital you know, yeah vital and and it's it's really a matter of life and death for for any number of people that um this aid is necessary because of this ongoing pandemic.
0: We're two Tuesdays away from the election. Have you heard anything from the Atlanta Jewish community? Anything from leadership down there in terms of how people are being inundated <laughs> with commercials and with campaign, I assume, debates and conversations and discussions. I mean, here we don't feel a thing about this election, but it's such an important one for, I mean, some would yeah. say it's important for the future of the country. I mean, have you heard from anybody in Georgia about what's going on?
3: Um, you know,
0: depending on the, the the
3: Jewish community broadly, right, is 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 divided. Right. Um, I can't give you percentages, but right. there are certainly those who strongly feel, you know, mm-hmm. that we, the Democrats got to win and others who feel the Republicans got to win. Um I think I you know what I would say is one rabbi in an Atlanta synagogue who I spoke to recently said his 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 top priority, no matter who wins this election, is that the Jewish community uh survives this election intact mm-hmm. and that uh it 's not so divisive as to Really rend the fabric of the community. Right. I, Ima- um, imagine,
0: imagine Trump Biden, but so, in such an acute fashion that it's just you know that it's even more local than the than the Trump Biden yeah. craziness was. Yeah, you
3: you you could have done very well, Nachum, if you had just reoriented your your uh, your broadcast to be. Uh, Georgia focused and only sell <laughs> sold political ads 24 hours a day. I mean, just, I
0: I'm, uh, just... I'm assuming that there are people who <laughs> if they watch TV for 9 minutes are seeing, you know, 15 commercials in a row. And that that's yeah. probably what's happening down there at this point.
3: Yeah, there's more money going into these races than literally than they can spend. <laughs> there's always so much money you can spend. You know what's funny?
0: You know what's funny about what you're saying? Generally, and I know that people could debate this, especially in recent elections because things have gotten so expensive. But generally, the only election that's always viewed as there's unlimited money is a presidential election, right? The two sides, like like mm-hmm. money, like you always say, it's the only election where money won't be a factor. That's almost what's happening now in Georgia, where you where you're destroying. Well, it
3: even happened. It, it even happened in November. I mean, uh, in in other Senate races. I mean, in the South Carolina Senate race. Um, the, the Democrat who was challenging Lindsey Graham, uh, raised something like $50 million, which was unheard of for a Senate race in South Carolina.
0: And they didn't have to worry Um, about using it all. It was unlimited as far as they were concerned. Yeah. And, and they, and they still
3: lost by the way. Um, you know, so money doesn't, money doesn't necessarily buy you an election. Right. Um, um, hey, but, Ma- Mayor uh, Mayor Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah, look, it's a function. It's it's really a function of the change in in the political fundraising system to uh, with technology, you know, and and the ability of of candidates. You know, you don't have to go and collect checks from one donor at a time, so to speak. You put out, um, you know, you put out a message, and you can raise uh, on the internet. Um, Millions and millions of dollars, people just clicking and giving you $5 at a time. Yeah. And uh, it's very efficient, and it brings in a lot of money.
0: It's amazing the benefits of, of what we've learned during this period. And obviously, that that's not specific to COVID. That was already in place, what you just described, you know, many elections ago, because we've drifted into this whole social media and instant uh, communication uh, era but what's interesting is that because of Zoom I spoke to somebody who's running for a local election and they were blessing Zoom why because instead of doing one parlor meeting a night they're doing six parlor meetings a night mm-hmm. you know targeted to different crowds different people and you know they they may not have a house filled with 50 people but they'll have six Zoom meetings with 20 each and that's much more effective for their purpose yes yeah. so it's yeah. very interesting to watch what's going on Nathan Diamond with us everybody Uh, I told you we'd uh, give you some good news. He's executive director for the Orthodox Union Advocacy Center. And assuming this relief package goes through, we'll be celebrating the fact, as will all the people who care about non-public day schools, uh, that uh, the bill includes $2.75 billion to support Jewish, Catholic, and other non-public day schools. And we celebrate the fact that, uh, again, with everything hopefully going through the not-for-profit security grant program began 15 years ago and now it will be doubled which is a significant increase from 90 million to 180 million helping security in both synagogues and in day schools. Uh Nathan Diamond, I thank you. Continue your amazing work. What's what's interesting about your job and thank God you you must be a very patient person because a lot of the stuff <laughs> you a lot of the stuff you started decades ago, you're finally seeing the fruits of your labor now. And that must be painstaking, you know, waiting this out for, you know, all these years to finally get some really solid results.
3: Yeah, it it takes a lot of patience, especially these recent months on these On these efforts, Uh, I'll say I uh, before COVID, uh, um, the the musical Hamilton came to Washington and and I was able to go and see it. And the mug, um, I bought a mug in the gift shop um, with the words on it. The Hamilton fans will recognize this. It says, wait for it. <laughs> because you're or I've because been using you're... <laughs> that mug. I've been using that mug all these months during all these Trump negotiations.
0: Because you're always waiting. <laughs> Simple as that. Well, thank you for all your great help and best regards to everybody at the OU Advocacy Center and thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Malcolm. Nathan Diamond, everybody. Working very hard and fighting very hard in Washington and everywhere else he needs to fight in order to help our community, and it's much appreciated. Thursday morning broadcast at 28 minutes after 8 o'clock here at JM. That was Nathan Diamond, a recent guest on JM in the AM. Coming up next, Professor Yonatan Alevi. He is from Shari Tzedek Medical Center. Had a lot to say about the vaccine and many other things having to do with COVID-19, including an update from Israel. Professor Yonatan Alevi, a recent guest on JM in the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. JM in the am on a wednesday morning an honor to welcome uh, professor yonatan alevi president of shari tzedek medical center back to this program lots going on in israel unfortunately regarding COVID 19 and here's an opportunity for us to get an update uh professor yonatan alevi shalom welcome back to jm in the am Shalom aborha.
2: nice Good to be with you again
0: i appreciate that always nice to speak with you um From a medical standpoint, why is Israel going through yet another, what seems to be spike, another serious wave of COVID-19?
2: Well, first of all, I think it's a global phenomenon, both in the U.S. and in Europe. uh, Third waves are prevailing, and uh, Israel is no exception. I also think that we could uh, avoid at least uh, a wave as high as we are witnessing now, if uh, if we were more careful, if uh, few weddings uh, were not held the way they were held, especially in the Arab segment of the population, but also in the Haredi segment of the population, if uh, people would not, uh, you know, congest themselves in, in malls, in shopping malls, started in Black Friday, if uh, families celebrated Hanukkah according to the directions that uh really uh preached to uh strict social separation, which was not always kept uh, but I think to avoid this third wave as we call it altogether no no country was able, even Australia that was actually free of covid nineteen um is is undergoing a mini wave. So it either has to do with a mutation that everybody speaks now, and it's not one mutation. It's many mutations. It may be a more contagious version of the virus that we witnessed before. Um, but I'm optimistic because most researchers, although nobody is 100 percent sure about it, most researchers are sure that the vaccine now will be efficacious against uh, the mutations as well as the original virus. And Israel is in the midst of a huge wave of uh, vaccinations. I mean, uh, there was a pilot in the first 72 hours, where close to 100,000 were um, vaccinated. And uh, the numbers for today are even even higher. The apprehension uh, and the the, uh, fears from, unbased fears, I should say, from the vaccine, are abating are are becoming smaller and smaller as more small people get vaccines. We are fortunate in Israel to have the folk the HMOs that have a marvelous organization of community service, with uh, community uh, clinics uh, everywhere. So it's rather easy to get uh, uh, allotment to get uh, allotment for the I mean a time time frame for to be vaccinated within the next 24 to 72 hours. So I believe by Erf Pesach, two to three million uh, Israelis would be vaccinated, which will lead us close to herd immunity.
0: Speaking to professor, uh, Professor Yonatan Alevi, before we go back to the vaccine, is Israel going to go through another very serious lockdown based on what you just described, this third wave?
2: I'm afraid. I'm afraid so. It's not final, there are still controversies, and uh, as you know, I'm a proud Israeli and very proud in all the governments that ruled in Israel since 1948. The present one excluded, <laughs> because uh, it's very difficult for them to reach a decision, uh, so I'm not sure. There are still uh, still controversial among uh, cabinet members, but I think uh, the tendency is towards a lockdown within a few days to a week from now.
0: All right. Uh, now, you mentioned 2-3 uh, million by Pesach. I remind everybody that Pesach is the final weekend of March, just to give a perspective in terms of the timetable. You mentioned that by Erev Pesach, you think Israel could be in the 2-3 to three million range in terms of Israelis, a number of Israelis who would at that point have been vaccinated. Now, we keep focusing selfishly on the desire to get to Israel, the desire to travel there and to visit there. Uh, We're under the assumption that until a majority of Israelis are vaccinated, we likely won't be allowed in the country. With that in mind, should we be prepared that those of us who thought that by the end of March there'll be free travel between the two countries, it's likely not gonna be that way?
2: Well, no one knows the definite answer to this question, but you can promote your chance to be able to visit Israel by Pesach if you get vaccine. I mean, anybody who will be vaccinated uh, with Israel Israel, uh, reaching close to herd immunity, I believe traveling will be allowed. I cannot guarantee that someone with no vaccine, uh, that Israeli authorities, immigration authorities, would rely on the herd immunity that will not be complete by the end of March. Uh, and allow non-vaccinated people to enter? Maybe yes, maybe no. I believe that vaccinees would definitely be able to enter. So why don't get the vaccine? I mean, is the vaccine will not be available to every New Yorker or every American citizen in the next three months?
0: I don't know. That's actually a good question. The way things are rolling out right now, I don't think uh, there's any definitive answer to that. Also, you might be familiar, and I think you alluded to it based on your introduction, uh, you might be familiar with the fact that a lot of high-profile people, even some in the medical world in this country, are quite skeptical about the vaccine, and that might put the brakes on the vaccine rollout for certain people or in certain areas. Why is there not the same skepticism in Israel?
2: Well, I think there was skepticism only after the publication of Pfizer and Moderna, there is the very convincing results. I think part of the skepticism dissipated after the FDA approval, and the last segment of the skepticism is being dissipated these days as more and more Israelis are vaccinated with no report, no report on any significant side effect. And on the other side, the government, this time acting very efficiently. Every evening and during the day, on every TV screen, you see opinion leaders who are appearing, getting the vaccine, preaching, telling about, I'm a commentator on one of the Israeli TV channels, and time and again, I give the scientific evidence that this vaccine is safer than any vaccine that we got in the past. That was based on a live attenuated virus or on a killed virus. You are talking about a molecule, the messenger RNA, that disintegrates in the cell within hours to days after the injection. That cannot affect the DNA. It cannot penetrate the DNA. It's based on scientific logic. It's the safest vaccine ever.
0: So when, when, uh, when, when uh, lay people. Uh, not medical people, but lay people uh, express skepticism because of the speed with which the vaccine was developed. Do medical people like you say that's silly because they don't realize, meaning the average person doesn't realize just how advanced technology is now in 2020? And if a vaccine 15 years ago took three or four years, yes, we are at a point where now 15 years later, a vaccine can be developed in under a year.
2: Yes, I definitely say it's illogical, but also the facts are not accurate. The messenger RNA technology is already here for a couple of decades, and the efforts to introduce it into a vaccine are also continuing for around a decade or more. The success within the last 10 months has to do with with the fact that the best scientific laboratories and brains in the world were recruited. And they acted under the premise that money is of no problem. I think your president, your living president, outgoing president, should be given credit for that. I mean, he influxed billions of dollars to the pharma, to the pharmaceutical companies, in order to expedite. So even factually, I wouldn't say that this is, you know, in Hebrew we have an expression, hachipazon mea satan. Uh, being hasty is uh, satanic this is not true in this case, it's not so hasty it's definitely not uh, satanic because it's well based scientifically and the technology was, uh, was uh, actually originated a couple of decades ago.
0: Yeah, here we say haste makes waste, and I think it's uh, along, okay. the, along the same lines. Uh, Professor Halevi, we had a discussion on the air yesterday, and I'm wondering if you've heard or have uh, been involved in any of this research. Is there any recommendation for or against pregnant women taking the vaccine?
2: So, you know, at the beginning, and the official document, I think even by the FDA, not to mention Moderna and Pfizer, said that because of the fact that there were not enough, or maybe not at all, pregnant women in the Phase three uh, clinical trials of uh, Pfizer and Moderna, so we cannot give it to pregnant women. In the meantime, in the last couple of weeks, uh, I mean, scientists from all over the world said that, again, logically, first of all, we know that uh, uh, it does not affect the embryo. And uh, it is illogical not to give it to pregnant women. So as opposed to regular people, I would understand hesitant pregnant women to get the vaccine. But the official notification by the Ministry of Health through for day before yesterday is that it is safe for pregnant women, and the, the guidelines for the Israeli uh, healthcare care uh, providers, the FOKU is that any pregnant woman who wants it should get it. So I believe there is consensus among the scientific community that it is safe for pregnant women as well.
0: I don't know if you have the statistics in front of you. What percentage of Sharet staff, especially those who are directly involved, in medical situations, have already been vaccinated.
2: Yeah, of course I have the statistic. By this evening, we will finish over one thousand employees, and that would be around what percentage finish the... vaccinating, not finish the employees, of course. <laughs>
0: right, and that would be about what percentage of the total employees that you need to vaccinate. We, we
2: have we have forty five hundred employees, but we started with the staff that's in direct contact. With uh, COVID-19 patients, these are around 250. Then we opened it to everyone. We have uh, five stations where we give every 15 minutes uh, to another one. We have a capacity to do around 300 a day, and we are doing 1,000 within three days.
0: Is any of the, uh, are any of the protocols in the hospital going to change as more and more people are vaccinated? Will we see less protective equipment uh, on staff members? Will we uh, open up the doors to more visitations by friends and relatives? Is is a lot going to change while this all goes on, or it's going to be a while before any policy changes?
2: I think it's going to be a while. First of all, we really have to be sure that uh, a large percentage, somewhat, something like 85% of uh, the uh, employees are vaccinated. And the second issue is that the jury is still out about whether a vaccinated person can infect others from viruses that accumulate in the mucosa of his nose when he's infected, maybe when he's outside the hospital or inside the hospital. He himself could not get the disease because he got the vaccine, but he may infect others. Again, the jury is still out about that. The assumption is that after further research that is done all over the world, we will find these people, the vaccinated people, non-infective. But this is not true. And as long as this is not definite, we will definitely not change policy.
0: Has any of the under age 21 population of Israel been vaccinated yet?
2: Only those with uh, severe background diseases like, uh, you know, juvenile diabetes that we call today Type 1, it's not called anymore juvenile, but those with uh, type 1 diabetes and and uh, severe background diseases, uh, heart malformation, and so on. All the rest, um, uh, people are people in uh, in closed, uh, institutions, uh, in in uh, dormitories uh, where they not don't go out. You know, people with special needs, but uh, a healthy and there 20 were not vaccinated yet they are, they will be the last I
0: mean this is good but it
2: will be very quickly in Israel because really thanks to our government I don't know if it's Bibi Netanyahu himself or official at the ministry this is also controversial but to lead to it that Israel will have in December 4 million vaccines and through january and february for the rest of the population this is an unbelievable achievement and i'm very proud in my government for this after criticizing them at the beginning of this interview i must finish with a good remark
0: do you have any idea about other middle eastern countries are they even close to the numbers of vaccines that israel is going to have very soon
2: no definitely unaware of it i haven't heard about any one of our neighbors getting the vaccines i mean uh, Nowhere but uh, US, Britain, and uh, Israel. Maybe I heard Canada too, but few Western countries got the vaccine in December. I guess most of them will get them gradually during the first quarter or first half of 21. And
0: what is this going to do to the nursing home population? There is a relatively large nursing home and nursing home-type facility population in Israel. I'm assuming that they are now in the midst of being vaccinated, that they are priorities? Yeah, they are
2: highest priority. Many of them were vaccinated. There, there need to be more uh, explanation to these uh, uh, to this population, say, uh, I myself was invited by Ramot Tamir. It's a nursing home, quite a large nursing yeah. home with a few hundred there. Uh, yeah, we know here, yeah. In, in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the owner is a board member of Shah Raih Tzedek, a very uh, distinguished board member, Mr. Hille Leibovich. Right. And he invited me to lecture in Hebrew and English in order to convince uh, the tenants there. To be vaccinated including people in their 90s i must tell you that i had many many questions there that showed some skepticism i hope i was able to dissipate most of the skepticism so this is
0: a real game changer i mean in a period of weeks nursing homes in israel can can operate normally, most likely, or at least the way they remember operating. Absolutely.
2: Again, I'm not sure they will operate normally in terms of allowing many more people to come. Needless to say that all the caregivers have to be vaccinated and they are being vaccinated, including foreign employees. Uh, So again, because of the reasons that I mentioned before, I'm not sure that the nursing homes will be open to the public, which is very, very important because seclusion is very bad for these uh, uh, elderly people. Uh, I think the visitation uh, uh, rules will not change so soon. Definitely not before. We will know for sure that a vaccinated person cannot be contagious.
0: So as much as we would love for you, to breathe a sigh of relief because, hey, there's a vaccine and, and a large percentage of your employees are being vaccinated and hopefully life in the hospital will be a little bit more normal. Because of this third wave, you really can't look back and breathe that sigh of relief yet, right? This, the, the hospital kill, still has the potential to be stretched to the maximum over the next few weeks.
2: Hard to believe that to the maximum. This morning we have 74 74- COVID-19 patients, uh, 12 of them are on uh, respirators. Right. Uh, there are another 20 that are in what we call severe to critical situation. I hope most of them will survive. This is not a number that overwhelm our resources here. To give you an example, we have 128 respirators. Only 38 are in use this morning. Wow. So we are far from bringing stress to capacity, but uh, it's an unfortunate wave. It definitely prevents a sigh of relief right now, right. but it does not prevent me from counting the days that elapsed since I got the vaccine 72 hours ago. See, I'm counting the hours, yep. not the days, <laughs> uh, in order in order to be to be right. sure that uh, I'm uh, I have the Full uh, quantity of antibodies, which will happen a week after the second shot, uh, three and a half weeks from now. Right. All
0: right. So uh, you're basically saying, Nahum, I could see you in Jerusalem if you just take the vaccine. I guess I have to step up my efforts and uh, try to get that vaccine as soon as possible. It will only lead to me getting to Israel uh, uh, sooner rather than later.
2: Well, I don't know how you will get my remark, but I believe there is more chance that I will see you in New York by the end of January, (laughs) that you will see me, unless you got the vaccine already.
0: Right, I haven't gotten it yet, but I was
2: wondering, we
0: we should mention it's the end of the year, and a lot of people out there love supporting Shari Tzedek Medical Center. I am sure that you will join me in reminding everybody that this is a very, very good time to support your amazing institution, because you, I assume... Financially, have been stretched in 2020. I can't imagine that this pandemic has not really given the hospital some real financial challenges.
2: Absolutely. And we told you subjectivity, there is no better cause.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and I know you're being as objective as possible. Uh, Professor Yonatan Alevi Tadarabah, thanks so much for joining us this morning.
2: You're most welcome. Sorotovot.
0: Sorotovot is right. Professor Yonatan Alevi, longtime director general, now president of Shari Tedek Medical Center. He's got the facts and the stats and everything at his fingertips. And it's amazing speaking to him. And what an update from Israel. I don't think we've had – I'm serious now. I don't think we've had one, one positive and optimistic conversation about COVID since it started on the air that one could really say was optimistic and positive. I don't think we've had one. Maybe – At the end of the first wave, when summer began, maybe all of us thought that things were dissipating, maybe then. This was really the first serious, positive, optimistic conversation about COVID-19 that we've had. And to hear that 25% of the employees at Shari Tzedek are already vaccinated and that Israel could be in the millions soon and that travel will likely open up for anybody who has a vaccine, and to hear Professor Alevi, who is such a genius in the world of medicine, Tell us why we shouldn't be skeptical about the vaccine. All that together, um, very, very promising as we end the calendar year. Very, very promising. And check out the American Committee for Charitetic Medical Center on online. American Committee for Charitetic Medical Center. I know uh, we might think he was being subjective, but uh, objectively, it is an amazing cause, and they do great work and save our people on a daily basis. More coming up. You're listening to a Wednesday morning edition of JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Professor Jonathan Halevi. That does it for JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up. Keep it right here on NSN, the Nahum Siegel Network.